Welcome, everyone, to episode three of Points of Connection. Thanks for being with us uh, during season two, and uh, I hope your transition back to campus is uh, going well. Uh, we're joined here today by the Associate Director of Liturgy, uh, Kate Barrett. Kate, how are you? I'm doing good, Christian. How about you? It's good to have you. I'm doing very well. Um, our topic today, our point of connection today, is to consider um, how the discovery of ourselves and the discovery of God have some uh, somehow have something uh, in common with each other. When you find yourself and you can sense that you're disintegrated, what do you notice? Gosh, my immediate thought is that I notice that time goes by without me even realizing it. In, in not in a positive way. I mean, time can go by like in prayer and it's fabulous and you don't realize how long you've spent, right? But when time goes by and you realize you've just you've just like spaced out or you've just sort of wasted time. That to me is always a sign that like, yeah, like things are disintegrating, uh, both in the common way we would use that, that expression falling apart or whatever, but, or dissolving, but also that, that I become less integrated in who I am. Um, so yeah, it's just all of a sudden you're like, well, wow, that's four hours. I'll never get back again. And then, not really very proud of how I spent that time. <laughs> what about you? JJ, I feel like this is a space that you like you've explored in your life. <laughs> Why would you say that? I don't know. I'm a, a friend, as a friend of yours. I feel like this is something you know about of like, what, what, what is JJ like when he, when he gets disintegrated? Oh gosh. Endlessly tired and listless at the same time, maybe. But actually I talked to this uh, friar friend of mine yesterday who I, I hadn't talked to in about two years and he just called me out of the blue and, you know, he's, he's a Franciscan. So anytime you talk to him, he just goes right in, you know, he's just like, here's what's going on. You know, he said, the moment of breakdown is the moment of breakthrough, Interesting. which I really liked because he's, he was talking about how, um, these times where he's struggled to find connection with God. And, and, um, during these times he feels like he has nothing left to offer and yet somehow because of grace, he finds this invitation that that draws him to the next to the next stage of his relationship with God. So I, I really liked that as a it's not very personal, but um, but I liked that kind of as a metaphor for what you're asking. How about you, Christian? Oh my gosh, um, I, I think it's similar to you, Kate. I I, I know when I'm disintegrated um, when I close in. Um, actually, I'll say this: when I'm most integrated. I am one who's like open to community and relationship and generosity. And I like to cook for people and I like to bring people together. And when it's, when it's times of disintegration, uh, yeah, I just like, I withdraw. I feel like a turtle that like goes into the shell and then, uh, and then, and then like I throw the biggest pity party inside of the shell and uh, it's a fun party because I throw it, uh, but I just I feel like I can, I never. So it's get perfect. It. It's yeah, perfect. it's like it's perfect. Yeah. Person is there. What's not to like? Exactly. It's like a very comfortable, but it's a very insular space. About like uh, when when I'm when I feel disintegrated, I tend to like isolate. Oh, I asked that question because th- does does this awareness give you any insight into understanding God or understanding your own relationship with God in your own life? Going back to what my friar friend said, I liked that because he related that sort of despondency and despair with sort of like an immediate showering of grace, you know, and I, it's for me, it's really easy to get stuck in the whole, um, to get stuck in the shell, you know, and to just see it's all bad. 
nothing's going to improve here. I'm really blowing this. I'm not sure how I'm going to salvage it. And yet at that moment, there's also this hand reaching out. He kept talking about the prodigal son and how, you know, this is the younger son, right? This is the person, the inheritance wasn't his to, to have. And yet when he's welcomed back after using everything, um, he, he referenced the Rembrandt painting that you may or may not be able to picture, but the father places his hands gently on the son's shoulders in that moment of tenderness where it's just like, you know, welcome back. I'm mm-hmm. so glad you're here. Mm-hmm. And I'm not just glad you're here. I'm not going to make you feel bad about it. Even mm-hmm. I'm going to, we're going to celebrate. This is the best moment that's happened. You know, and I, I just love that because I feel like that's in my best moments, at least I can, I can find maybe still hear God's voice in that. Yeah. Um, JJ, that image of breakdown and breakthrough is really helpful to me when I'm feeling disintegrated. That notion of just time going by is me kind of avoiding God, you know, like almost saying like, I I can't show up to this right now because I don't have my stuff together. Right. But it is in that moment when we stop sort of trying to prepare ourselves to offer ourselves to God, like, look how good I'm doing, you know, that kind of thing. When we've got nothing left, that's when we're able to allow God to say, this is what I want. I just want you. Mm -hmm. I don't want who you wish you are or who, who you think you should be or you know, some other hand you think you should have been dealt. I just want you in your most vulnerable self, the way the younger son was when he, when he came back, um, to allow that moment of vulnerability. I think it's so powerful because it reminds us that God only wants us and not even some polished up version. That takes a lot of faith to think that like, so to go to your paradigm, JJ, that that the friar shared with you from breakdown to breakthrough that transition from breakdown to breakthrough is the obstacle. Mm-hmm. It's this, it, it's because it can go two ways, at least for me, right? It's breakdown and I can either be like, yeah, and yet God still loves me. And I can see that like, even in, and and this breakdown is part of who I am and because I'm human and I, and I can understand how I can still be loved. But when I'm not fully uh, aware of God's love for my life, that breakdown just ends up shame. Like mm-hmm. I, I shouldn't be like this. Kind of like what you're saying, Kate. So how have you in your lives what practice of what practice of faith or just understanding or relationship with God has allowed you to maybe in some case better time better than others make that movement from breakdown to like breakthrough or breakdown to grace like how does how do you how do you navigate that it's it's kind of one of those things where success builds on success right like the more time we spend with God asking God to show us grace you know, to show us God's self, the easier it is to recognize it when it comes along. Yeah. Um, there's, it's, um, the, the more you can, you can notice those little things, right? The more you can notice those little moments. Um, it's, I, I think back to when JJ's, when he wrote to me and told me a little bit about what today would be like, um, he, he asked a really thoughtful question, like, what are our sources you know, so we think about the church's sources and our common sources, right? What do we share in common? We share scripture and we share liturgy. We share um, the doctrine of the church and the tradition. But um, but that God is the source, right? And so it's one thing to sort of read about God or or pray to pray in community, 
Um, but it's, it's the day in and day out, like desire to know God and to allow God to know me that that means when, when God comes along in one of those little moments and we really need it, um, God's going to look more familiar to us. Uh, you know, like we'll be able to see grace or feel it in our hearts more readily. There's no question in my life when I am in a moment of disintegration that it is not a great experience and it's not necessarily one that I'm, I'm oftentimes proud of. And yet, I think what what allows me to make that jump is, gosh, if God can love me in the times where in which I'm fully integrated and God still loves me during these times where I'm disintegrated, the question I ask myself, well, if God can love me during this time, why can't I? Why can't I like accept that this also is part of who I am? And I'm not to say that I need to stay here and like it, it and never grow, but I think it is allowing myself to be receptive to how God loves me that might inform how I love myself. Actually, where the growth begins, and actually for me is where like I start to recognize, all right. So, what would be the most loving response to 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 myself, given kind of like how I've come to know uh, these moments of disintegration in my life? Yeah, the biggest obstacle for me from breakdown to breakthrough is the word should. This shouldn't happen, Christian. This should this is not this is not who you should be. I just don't know if God actually it, I've discovered as I've kind of befriended these times in my life, I've recognized that that's just not what God's saying to me. That's what I'm saying to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the that's the interesting thing about the disintegration model that you propose too cuz it's like who's decided that I'm disintegrated? Interesting. You know, oh, like wow. I, I guess, yeah, I guess I'm deciding yeah. in that moment, right? Like, and, and how much habit is that based on how much, how much is that based on just like the, the external, um, influences that on our personalities or on our perception of who we are. And, um, and that's why I like the, the prodigal son is so great because if you break down the story, uh, in a way it's the son asks for all his aspirations, up front, right? He doesn't want to go through the process to, of realizing his aspirations. He just says, I want them all now. You know, I'm done waiting. Father says, okay, here you go. He takes all of his aspirations and he, and he goes out and he uses them all in ways that he doesn't like. He's, he's not happy with the way that he's used his aspirations. And so after all of that, he comes back with nothing. Well, I, I used all the things that I thought I should be. Maybe I should just go back. Mm. I got nothing left. Mm. Do you think in that story of the prodigal son, so if, if, our, if our conversation today is about discovery of self and discovering God, does the son actually discover the truth of who God is if he didn't go through his prodigal son experience? Does he have to have the experience of going out and like failing to really discover truth? Is, is failure necessary to discover the truth of oneself and the truth of who God is? It is for me. Me too. <laughs> and and I would kind of say that at least from what this that scripture says and what it doesn't say, that it would make the same argument, right? Because you don't really know how the story ends, but the elder son, there's no indication that the elder son ever gets it. Oh, sure. Right? Like the this the the father tries, but um yeah. And, and I've heard, you know, as we probably all have, like there's all, all these homilies that have speculated on whether or not the younger son was really repentant or did he just come back because he was kind of desperate and hungry. 
Um, in the in the painting that you referenced, JJ, one of the things I love and and Rembrandt so good with light is the soles of the sun's feet are, are kind of right in the middle, lower middle of the painting, and there's a light shining on them, and they're bare bare feet, and they're mm-hmm. like. You know, you can tell this guy has been walking in a bad way. For a, a little crusty crust, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so, but but I guess where I'm going with this is, I don't know that it ever matters, right? Like for the younger son, like what were his motivations in coming back? In the end, he, he did, right? Mm-hmm. And so sometimes that moment, the breakdown to breakthrough, maybe that happened a little bit later, but he he got to the point where he realized he was at at his kind of lowest moment, and he he took action. He did something, mm-hmm. um, and and the younger son, I mean the older son, sorry, kind of he never really takes action. He just presumably hears the dad out and maybe still grumbles. <laughs> yeah. So so I do think there's and and don't you, I mean we know in our own personal experiences, and and it's almost a cliche to say like. You learn so much more from your failures than you do your successes. And it's not an, I, yeah, and I, I don't want to go as far as to say like we're advocating people to be, do sinful things. That's not the case. But on the other hand, it also doesn't, it, do, it also doesn't mean that we take no risks. I think our, our, our fear to fail or our fear to like disappoint God can sometimes make us like the older son and just do nothing and not even recognize the generosity that's in front of us and just stay put. So I think for, that the tension of discovering self and discovering God lies somewhere between saint and sinner, right? It's like this, like, uh, uh, how do I risk? But how do I also fall in the in light of God? How do I be true to myself? I find like all of these questions seem to come up when we have to come in contact with the truth of our identity. It's not that I want to sin. The fact is I'm a sinner and God still loves me. It, if I'm trying or not, it, it's going to happen. I'm not perfect. Uh, but it doesn't mean I shouldn't risk. What's that? What's the contemplative life, or what's the what's the uh, the spiritual life? How is it inviting me to discover something deeply true, not just about who God is, but something about deeply true about who I am, and not just who I want to be, yeah, you know, or or some other. I've so often fallen into the trap of like admiring another person, and so wishing that I was them or that I had these qualities that they have, and that always leads me to forget that, like. God loves who I am, like the deepest truth about me, not some version of myself that I think I could be better if I was more like X. Hmm. Yeah, my gosh, I think you're describing my entire 20s. <laughs> my spiritual director one time uh, asked me, uh, struggling with, with who I want to be rather than who I, or should be rather than who I am. Uh, he directed me to take a walk and to take a look at the flowers around uh, the university I was at. And I was like, who's this guy? Tell me what, look around flowers. And he was, and, and before I left, he quoted uh, Thomas Merton. And when he talks, when Thomas Merton talks about the, 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 the true holiness of a tree is that the tree simply doesn't want to be anything other than a tree. Hmm. This keeps bringing to mind this idea of how often do I see myself um, in what I want to be as looking at things and saying, that ought to be mine. I ought to get that experience. I know myself. I know what I can bring to the table. Why don't I get to do that? Yeah, man. I think a foundational understanding of God that scripture is very clear about is when God created, God saw that it was good. I think the discovery of self 
um, and how it lends itself to understanding who God is, is I am so, I'm, I, I know this feeling well of like, I want to be, I should, I want to be something that I, I, I know that might not necessarily be fully who I am. At the end of the day, if I really play into that, I start to question if God, who created everything that's good, if you made a mistake with me. <laughs> it, it, why is it that so much of my 20s um, was trying to run away from the very goodness that was inherently created in me? And maybe it's aspirational, maybe it was professional, but nevertheless, it was this wanting to be something other than myself. Mm. And that led to like a lot of anxiety and a lot of like spiritual direction and counseling and having, and I, I think most, much of the healing of those, of that decade for me came from having to remember these very basic parts of understanding who God is. I remember again, the same spiritual director said to me, I just want you to pray with the recognition that God doesn't just loves you. God likes you. <laughs> like he enjoys you. <laughs> And I could, how could he? And I think that was a decade's worth of remembering to heal a running away from a self that I thought I had to run away from. That's awesome. Kate Barrett uh, is the Associate Director of Liturgy in the Department of Campus Ministry. Kate, it's such a pleasure. Um, thanks for joining us today. Oh, this is great. Thanks so much, you guys. We'll be back in a minute with Becky Rubalcaba. Before I introduce our next guest, I just want to set the scene for everyone. Imagine, uh, JJ, if you're, you're, I'm pulling up to this house, right? There's smoke in the air, and I come up on this huge fire pit around a bunch of friends. This is pre-COVID, obviously. And uh, our next guest comes out with a huge, huge, I don't even know what to call it, a pan of some sort. And she starts grilling meats on this huge pan and starts making homemade tacos. Uh, a woman who is known for her hospitality, her care, and compassion. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Becky Rubalcaba, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Wow, wow. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Becky, thanks for joining us on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, thank you for the invitation. Oh, my, uh, look, um, yeah. We, we're talking today about discovering self and discovering God, and in no other way uh, do I think would be most appropriate than talking about food. So I set the scene for everybody. We're, we're, I, I, Becky was so kind to invite me to, to her house one time to have some uh, dinner uh, outside, uh, and she starts cooking tacos uh, over an open flame on this huge—what would you call that pan, Becky? What is that, what, what is that pan called? Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's a deep dish. It's, it's <laughs> Chicago style. Um, and it's yeah, ch Chicago style <laughs> more than Chicago style. It's very big, yeah. <laughs> but it's it's a pan that you actually use in restaurants. A friend of mine, a restaurant closed, and she she's like, I don't know what to do with this. And and right in my head, I was like, I do. Wow. <laughs> and so I asked her for it, and she says, Yeah. And the thing is, is that we go camping every year with our church group, and it was perfect to be able to cook like huge meals over a, uh, uh, over an open flame. Yeah. And, and that night though, you cooked us, um, something, uh, I don't know, something so beautifully, uh, both ordinary and, uh, also amazing. What did you cook us that night? Uh, we had, um, tacos de chorizo, Mexican sausage. We had bistec, 
which is uh, a steak, uh, like a, it's like a flank and then you cut it just so thin. Mm. And then, uh, then we had a mix of that. And then what I did also, I marinated this other part pork, which was marinated in pineapple. Um, I had, um, orange juice and, and it had a red, um, achiote, which is a, uh, a very, um, old spice from the Aztecs. And so you just got grind it and then you put it on the meat and you leave it overnight and it brings up these beautiful flavors, um, in the meat. It's not spicy. It's just yeah. flavorful. And so that's what we had that night. And the main reason I decided to do that was because of the fact that um, my mom always told me, have five dishes that you cook well. And those, are, <laughs> and those are the dishes that you invite friends to, to experiment what it is that, you know, that because you've studied it, you've practiced it, you know, um, and it has good flavor. But it shows all of that, that you've put that effort into it to be able to present to them, mm. you know. And so, but she's always told me five dishes, mm. you know. And then I remember watching a movie. I, I think it's, uh, uh, oh, it's, I forgot what it's called. It's um, the Mexican or something like that, where he cooks this, um, uh, this dish that is, he's very famous for. And he says the same thing. I was like, man, he said the same thing my mom did. <laughs> You're, this 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 particular these three different types of meats and tacos that you served us clearly have a story for you. Uh, what story did that food tell for you that night? Like, why? What, what story were you trying to share with us that evening with the food? Well, I think uh, first and foremost, just to be able to have um, my friends there, um, coworkers from work, to be able to share in something first in regards to who I am for uh, Mexican American and tacos you know, in my home, you know, um, we're just, even on the street, that's the first thing that we go for. It's our comfort food, or at least for me, I would say, I can't generalize, but it was part of my home. And, um, when you have carne asadas, cookouts outside, this is the the type of meats that you cook outside, you know, when you're inviting um, friends over. And so it was something that I grew up with. Um, it, it, it was flavorful, to where I, all these other side dishes kind of, um, that I made, uh, with the tacos, um, complement those. So I kind of just wanted to share a little bit of who I was in growing up, you know, this Latina, um, you know, Mexican American woman with her friends, um, together and, um, who may not be so, um, uh, spicy and flavorful in, 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 in her presentation, you know, um, because when you look at it, you're like, wow, I wonder if that's really good. And then when you taste it, <laughs> you know, then you know. Then you know. know. Really and so it's that, that company of, of, I may be kind of shy introverted, but when I have my friends over, that's the way I'm able to share who I am and share myself. Um, cause I love when people enjoy food, um, good food and good wine or good tequila. <laughs> <laughs> You, you also made a special drink that night. What was I, that? I did. It's a mix of squirt, uh, tequila, and lime. Okay. And then you mix it, and then you put a little bit of salt, you know, on your rim of your glass, and then you serve it on ice. And um, it's called a paloma. Paloma, okay. Mm-hmm. 
It's kind of like a margarita, but just a little different. Yeah, with the squirt. And <laughs> yeah. the thing is, I put it in this Mexican um, water pot because it's a pot that you usually put water in. It's yeah. made out of clay. And, and so that's what I mixed it in. It definitely makes the drink taste better. Yeah. <laughs> everything about that the reason why that evening sticks out to me so so uh so deeply is everything about that the recipe what you cooked in the method of cooking over a fire gathered on people even where you where where you um served uh, what's it called the, uh, the the drink was called what paloma paloma everything about that told a story about who you are and you just shared that, like cooking, even uh, the, what you said. And funny you say this, like uh, it, it's you think it's unassuming. It was phenomenal. It was actually one of my one of my favorite food experiences, actually, uh, in my life. Truly, uh, gathered around with friends and 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 eating uh, around the fire. Has it always been easy to tell this story? Has it always been easy to tell the story of your life? Uh, it sounds vulnerable when you talk about food. Uh, has that same vulnerability been there when having to own the story of who you are and, and then sharing it? No, it, it's not always been easy. I remember um, in high school especially, this whole idea of uh, really trying to hide myself and wanting to fit in, you know, um, maybe even the first part of college, my, my first year at St. Mary's, um, I, I just remember wanting to fit in and kind of just hiding the fact that I spoke another language too. Um, and my mom always told me and my dad too, it's, you, you have to own who you are. This is, these are your roots. These are who you are. And we would always go to Spanish mass. We grew up at Spanish mass. My parents speak perfect English, mm-hmm. you know, but they wanted us, you know, to be able to experience the fullness of who we are, including language. Um, I, La Casa de Amistad, which is a youth and community center here in South Bend, um, was developed for migrant farm workers. And my, my, my parents are migrant farm workers that ended up here in South Bend. And so this agency opened up for the teens. I was, I was like two years old at that time, and my dad was the first uh, youth director there. And I I literally learned how to walk in the halls there and just watching these young Latino youth walk through these halls with confidence. um, Really, uh, my dad and mom, I I don't know that I've had this conversation with them yet. uh, don't know what they did with having me there with them. Mm -hmm. You know, Um, music was central in that. And I think that helped. I, 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 started playing drums. My dad put me on his lap at two years old and with sticks and um, just to, to keep rhythm. And from two years old, I was playing drums and, and into music. And that's what he brought to those young people. It was music that was that, that they knew from their culture and then brought to mass, you know? So it was the choir La Vida life. That was the name mm-hmm. of the choir. Um, and that gave me life. But like I said, in high school, it kind of changed because I wanted to fit in. But something just in, I think it was my second year in college, where I just said, no, I can't. This is not who I am. You know, and I left the school. I left St. Mary's. I went to IU South Bend and finished there. Um, I found a job where my language was going to be used. I, I worked with migrant farm workers for 10 years um, going out to camps. Um, as like a case manager, um, taking people to doctors and dentists and, 
and things like that, taking them food. <clears throat> and just to find my roots again. Um, but food was always part of that, you know, at home. No matter how much I wanted to get away from it, I would come home and there was the tortillas, there was the frijoles, there was the arroz, you know, at the table with my mom and the language, even though, like I said, my parents are fully bilingual, but the language in the home was still, you know, this mix of uh, Spanish and English, you know, Spanglish, I guess some people would call it. Was food then ever something that you were just like ashamed of? Like, ah, I, I need something else? Or is that always a place that was a, a good reminder of home? But was it also, or, or was it ever a place for just like, no, nah, that's not what, what white people eat, or this is not what everyone else eats. I, I, this too, I want to shy away from. And yet it just kept reminding you of who you were. Is that a dynamic that you experienced too? Um, I would say yes and no, because of the fact that um, even though, I would try these new foods outside, even with my friends um, that were not Latino, were not Mexican heritage. And so I was always trying these new things, you know, and my parents always said that too, you know, try, but just don't lose who you are, mm. you know? Um, and so I would always try these things, but I always had my favorite foods, mm. you know? Um, and, and that always just reminded me of home. So I, I was never, ever truly away. Um, and I always craved certain things. There's a craving that you have, no matter what you else you try, you still have these craving for those things that you like, right. That you love. Um, and so I had that, um, my mom's menudo is my favorite, you know, um, people are like menudo. Ugh. <laughs> I love menudo. It's, it's, it's the, I don't know, uh, JJ, if you've ever had menudo or, or Christian, I have. It's the sliding of the stomach of the cow. Oh, okay, it's the next yeah. level. It's a, it's it's a it's it's three or four levels away from from tacos. I would say it's so good. It's good. It's good. When, it, when it's made well, I yes. have to say when it's made well. When it's not, it's devilish. Exactly. <laughs> you can die from it, literally. <laughs> <laughs> Becky, when you talk about food and your story, I can't help but sense that there is a a deeper spiritual nature to it. There's there's like a a, a drumbeat underneath it that's animating that. Mm -hmm. um, am I sensing that right? And if so, what is what's there? You're correct. Um, one of the things I, I I've been reflecting on actually since the invitation is my grandmother, and this is something that uh, I've picked up from her. She would bless food before serving um, and before starting to cook. You know, there was a blessing before starting just so that that all that she's putting into the, the preparation, um, that the taste be flavorful and that they can have the sense of who God is in their life just through the taste, you know. And so she would say this prayer and, and, and literally did like the priest blessed the food, you know, and then, um, and then of course the blessing before the meal. And there's this line that I say when I pray, which I got, um, I picked up from my husband actually, but really says exactly what my grandmother, um, was just truly saying and doing, um, every time that she would serve us. 
And in our prayer, we say before we eat that, um, that for all of those that go without eating today, may they be filled with that promise of, of, of bread of life. Okay. And that all of us that have to eat, maybe have hunger and thirst for you. So that's the prayer that we say before we eat every night, um, Pepe and I. And it's a reminder of that, that time that I, I, from my grandmother, that just all of her was in that meal, you know, including her prayer for us. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's very spiritual for me when I prepare, I'm, I'm praying the whole time or listening to music that brings me to prayer. Um, so even when I go and, and I think about, okay, uh, I'm inviting these people over, what do I need? You know, and you're thinking about the people that you're inviting. It's like, oh, would they, would they understand this flavor? You know, would they be able to take in what this is? You know, so really even thinking about the people that you're inviting, um, it brings me to that. Um, but then when I'm preparing and cooking, the smells, sometimes I don't get, I don't eat um, because the smells really kind of overwhelm me. So when I come to eat, it's like I'm full already, mm-hmm. but it, it was, I was full by all the flavor that was coming from, you know, everything that was being prepared, but to be able to watch the people that are enjoying those flavors that you've kind of, and I don't use recipe. It's all by, by smell, by taste, by just seeing and, um, you know, the, the texture of the food, there's no recipe. Um, and so that's why it doesn't come out the same every time it comes out different. And, uh, and so, but to watch the people then to kind of take in all that flavor that was just kind of put into it, it's just a joy for me. And, and my prayer has been, um, in essence, um, fulfilled. It's been, um, the grace of God has been, um, you know, placed upon us when the people finally eating and enjoying, you know? Yeah. I love the way Becky, you're able to kind of articulate this, uh, sense in which all the little pieces of, of what you're doing when you're making a meal are drawing you closer to God. And, I think more than anything, that's the sense that I get being when I'm with you, because it's like, you're already there with God. And it's like, Hey, JJ, come on in, like, have a look, you know? And I, just to, to give another little context, of course, I was at, at, at this meal also, but, um, a couple of years ago, I remember I really wanted my children, um, to get a sense of, uh, some sort of traditional celebration of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And so I asked Becky, like, what should we do? You know, like if I want to, Peter and Mary Frances, I think we're eight and seven at the time, probably here or seven and six. And Becky's like, oh, well, you know, there's a shrine up in Illinois and we take our parish there um, by bus every year. And, um, and we would love if you guys joined us. And so we were totally like out of our league or whatever, but you know, we show up, um, in the morning and we, you know, I think we're the only, um, the only like non parishioners there really. And Becky's right there. She's like, come on, get on the bus, get on the bus, you know? And, and they welcomed us on the bus and we went up, we had no idea what we we're getting into, but, um, it was, 
it was another one of these moments where, um, you know, we kind of, you know, I asked like, is there a way that we can experience this and, um, and connect with it in a different way. And the immediate response was, yeah, please just come on and join us. You know, like, well, we'll show you what to do. And I just appreciate that so much because it's, um, it, it really, it comes down to that idea that you're, you're, you're able to cultivate that presence in which you're seeing God in the food or in the experience. And, um, and you're willing to just open it up and share it with whoever asks. And I appreciate that so much. Oh, thank you. I, I truly remember that day. I'm so grateful for you for being there with us. It was wonderful. Thanks. It was super cold. It was cold. <laughs> it was right. It was two, probably two years ago, almost to the day. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Beautiful. There's just some things that we can't be told. We just got to eat it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think the beauty comes from that. You, you said something, Becky, um, when, you, when you're cooking, uh, part of your um, your prayer is, I don't know if they'll understand the flavor, but I'm going to offer it to them anyway. Uh, I hope they receive what has been prepared for them. I can't help but think that your prayer of cooking mirrors God. It mirrors, like, I, I, in my own life, I imagine that God says the same to me. I don't know if this guy's ready for these flavors. I don't know if he's ready for what's prepared, but I, I do want him to try it. I do want, uh, Christian, I want you to try it. Um, one thing I wanted to touch base on, you were talking about how your grandmother would bless the food and prepare it and bless it. Um, and you said that when you ate the food, it wasn't just eating the food. It was eating almost like her prayers as well. Like you were, you were consuming also uh, her offering to you. And there was a little emotion there. I just wanted to touch, like, why does that trigger emotion for you? Why does that seem to, you, you have stumbled on something deeply true. What, what, what did you stumble upon when, when you were talking about that? Um, I, I love my grandmother. She, she was, um, uh, in recent years, I've reflected a great deal on on who have been those people in my life that have introduced um, uh, who God is, um, who our mother Mary is, uh, and my grandmother is the root of of my love for Our Lady of Guadalupe. First and foremost, <laughs> she was a Guadalupana, the Society of Guadalupanas. She prayed the Rosary every day. I wasn't so, I'm still, I struggle with praying rosary every day. Um, <laughs> but um, my grandmother um, just always told me, learn the rosary, learn to pray, you know, and no matter what. And she struggled a great deal, my grandmother, um, suffered a great deal, even even to her last um, breath. Um, she died of, uh, of uh, cervical cancer. And... Um, and I remember taking care of her with my mom at nights um, and, and watching her in that pain. But from her lips was always, you know, a love for God and, and, and saying, you know, um, that gratefulness uh, for the people caring for her is unbelievable. Um, so that's what the motion is. It's, it's it, when I think about how her food tasted, um, which my food can never taste like hers, <laughs> but I can, I still have that taste in my mouth, you know, um, when I think of her and the smells, um, 
I think about what she gave me beyond that, which is this, this love for God, this love for our mother. It started with her. I think it's so um, appropriate when you said that cooking is your prayer, because I think I'm similar. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, I never wanted to cook, and I love cooking now. When I was a kid, I really didn't like praying. What's the point of that? Someone else is going to do it for me anyway. Mom's exactly. going to do it for me. Grandma's going to do it for me. Yeah. I think prayer, cooking, and similar to prayer for me, only made sense when I start recognizing that this is something I have to learn how to do for my own sustenance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it. not just for my own sustenance, but like as I care for those around me, it's the same love language of I have to learn how to pray for those who don't know how yet to, or those who, who, who find it inaccessible. My prayer becomes like the cooking. It becomes not for my nephew, Micah. My prayer becomes for him uh, as a means of, of holding him and, ho- and, and offering him sustenance in a time where he's learning how to both cook. I gave him a knife for Christmas, by the way, really great. <laughs> both cook and to pray. I, I think the parallels are, un- are clear. Yeah. I just, I just think of that, you know, it's like, wow, it's like my faith. It's just grown and it's gotten better, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, it's fuller. I love also how it's, it's gotten fuller and grown as you've connected it more deeply to who you were as a young person and sort of, or lived that out as through the lens of who you are now. Mm -hmm. You said something JJ about like, like inviting people in, like, come, you know, taste it, you know, yeah. experience it, you know? And, and I remember, um, my husband, um, well, my boyfriend at that time, he would always invite me to retreats. And I always said, no, I always said, no, I know what you're up to. <laughs> and, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't like that stuff, you know? And, and I was just like retreats really. And um, he would always invite me. Um, and it wasn't until after we were married when I finally said yes. Because it was my mom again. She was yeah. he's inviting you. You're his <laughs> wife. Yeah. You know? Go. And here now I am, campus minister. <laughs> Running retreats, you know? Praying with students. Who would have never, I mean, I would have never thought. Stephanie's invitation to retreats for you is the same dynamic I have with Menudo. Just try it. I don't don't know if I do. I don't know if I (laughs) It's good. It's like, I know, but it's kind of, yeah, it's exactly, it's it's similar. You got to try my mom's. (laughs) I look forward to it. I look forward to it. Um, Becky, thank you for preparing for us uh, a, a taste of God's grace. Thanks for being on the show with us. Would you mind closing us out in prayer? Dios Padre Santo, te damos gracias por estos alimentos, alimentos que sean provecho para nuestro cuerpo. Te pido que bendigas a los que no tienen de comer en este día, en este día que puedan recibir ese pan de día. Y nosotros que tenemos de comer, que podemos crecer y ser saciados en ti. Te pido esto en tu nombre, en nombre de tu Hijo Jesucristo. Amén. Special thanks to our guests today, Kate Barrett and Becky Rubalcaba, and to all of our guests this season, to Tammy Schmitz, Mike Hebler, Brett Perkins, and Amorja Roberson. 
It's been a gift to share points of connection with you this entire season. Now, if you're listening and you enjoyed what you hear, please share it with a friend. Or better yet, start a dialogue in your own circles and communities. In a world that can seem disjointed and disconnected, may we strive to create points of connection with one another. On behalf of J.J. Wright, my co-host, I'm Christian Santamaria. Thanks for listening. Points of Connection is a production of the Office of Campus Ministry at the University of Notre Dame.